The judges come down on Marine A's side, but did the Royal Marines' higher command fail? Estonia, why Putin's generals are watching British troops. South Sudan, the man-made disaster, millions could starve to death. And a hundred years since the start of the Russian Revolution, but Moscow isn't celebrating. Supporters of Alexander Blackman, the Royal Marine who killed an injured Taliban fighter in Afghanistan, say no other member of the military should face the same treatment. His murder conviction was reduced to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility yesterday. Royal Marine Sergeant Rob Driscoll served with Alexander Blackman in Afghanistan. He was in the next checkpoint to Sergeant Blackman in Nad Ali and he shared radio communications with him at the time of the shooting. He told BFBS he recalls the day vividly and understands how Sergeant Blackman may have been feeling at the time. I can remember the day, you know, it was just another day in Afghanistan. And I can remember the relief when Al came over the radio and said that the guy was dead, you know. We did, there was no more information other than the guy was dead. And I was relieved because we'd already been on the ground, you know, I didn't really want to have to crash out another patrol. The guys were exhausted as it was, you know, I think I'd have been really confused, for want of a better word, if suddenly I was pushing my guys back out to go and stretch a bear for an insurgent that we know had been shooting at one of the camps. Well, Sergeant Driscoll says conditions were tough. Sleep-wise, we were, we were really, really, really suffering because it was absolutely sweltering out there. People would do 36 hours without sleep and in the middle chuck in a six or seven kilometre patrol carrying, you know, 50 or 60 kilograms on their back and maybe a little small firefight. It's, it's insane when you look back at it, but it's what, what we had to do. Professor of Defence Mental Health Neil Greenberg, who gave evidence for Alexander Blackman, told BFBS that his sense of isolation, having lost colleagues, and with his own brushes with death, could easily have damaged his mental health. Because he was kind of a tough Marine sergeant who couldn't really speak openly to his colleagues because they were all junior to him and he was in charge. What well, were absolutely clear that the impact of immediate line managers on the mental health of the teams they lead is dramatic. Well, the Conservative MP Richard Drax helped lead the appeal campaign. The conditions that he served in were absolutely appalling. I think the military got to look at this case very carefully. Well, I'm joined by BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello, Christopher. What can we learn from this case? I think you can learn lots of things, and that is um, that it, it depends entirely upon command. It depends upon monitoring troops in battle for how long they're there and also the circumstances and knowing your people quite well. A lot of cases, this did not happen. I will tell you the best thing to do. Go and get, and you can, you get the transcript of this appeal court case. And every young, every junior officer, and I suspect every senior officer, you'd simply read it, and some of it is horrifying, not in its gory detail, but in what didn't happen and what should have happened, and that is the best way of learning what to do. Don't wait for a commission of inquiry or recommendations from up top. Simply read 
the, the, the court case. This week, the MOD made a statement. It said the Royal Navy carried out a thorough internal review. We stand by the conduct of all commanders involved. We will study the findings of this case very carefully and will act upon any lessons identified. Do you think we're actually going to see any changes at all? I think we'll see seem very, very simple changes in most matters. For example, the command system, who is in command, the quality of the commanders. I mean, there was one point when Nad Ali uh, appeared like a junk heap and people were walking around like Rambos. You know, that is something going out, something going going wrong there. But go, I go back to it, everybody, including from the Commandant General down to the new recruit, ought to read the, the, all the trial transcripts. They will then make sure that they do things mm. differently, perhaps, or make sure they do them right in the first place. They'll do them themselves. And all commissions of inquiry, everything, have always proved one thing. On the ground, changes get things done. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, what can British troops do about famine in South Sudan? And why President Putin isn't celebrating the centenary of the Russian Revolution? So next month, 800 British soldiers along with tanks and armoured vehicles will be in Estonia. The five-year NATO mission is Britain's first long-term deployment to one of Russia's neighbours since the end of the Cold War. Five Rifles is the first unit to go, based just 80 miles from the Russian border. Russia describes the deployment as provocative, while Estonia says it needs NATO more than ever because it fears Russian aggression. Well, our reporter Charlotte Banks has been to Estonia to find out out why British troops are needed there. It's a freezing Saturday afternoon in Estonia and the country's defence forces are training hard, fighting a battle to defend the forest from an invader. But these are not regular forces. This is an official paramilitary force known as the Estonian Defence League, the EDL. Since Russia's involvement in the Ukraine in 2014, the Baltic states, which border Russia, have been preparing for what they see as a growing threat to their sovereignty. If Estonia is threatened, this militia of trained civilians will be ready to defend it at all costs. Nowadays, uh, there's much tension in the air, and uh, it is all very necessary for um, every uh, Estonian to be aware of it and uh, be ready to defend themselves. The regular Estonian Defence Force is made up of conscripts and the professional army and it has just 6,000 soldiers. Through numbers alone, the militia makes up the bulk of the country's armed forces. The EDL has about 20,000 members and they're trained in a whole range of tactics including guerrilla warfare so that in the really unlikely event of an invasion here in Estonia they could make life really difficult for an enemy. The commander of the regional battle group, Major Ivo Hakmanov, says the EDL has drawn tactical lessons from insurgents, including the Taliban. So we have uh, smaller units which are trained to conduct the raids, guerrilla type of warfare and uh, organise uh, uh, resistance uh, behind the enemy lines. The man in charge of the EDL, Brigadier General Milis Kili, says Estonia is in many ways already under attack. Cyber attacks, we, we, we take it as a, as a normality. Information operations, a uh, propaganda, we are in that, in that regard we are already under the, uh, the pressure and the attack. 
Since Russia went into Ukraine in 2014, annexing Crimea, concerns about what Russia might do in the Baltics are at their highest than at any time since the collapse of the Soviet Union. But Estonia is a member of the EU and the capital city Tallinn is a thriving European city. Venture further east, however, and there's a different story. Just two hours away by road is the city of Narva, which sits on the Russian border. It has a population of 6,000 and 90% speak Russian. Many people feel culturally Russian. The old Soviet factories have closed. There are few jobs and little investment. This is the border that Estonians fear could one day be moved by force. Nikolai Andreev is the editor of a Russian-language newspaper in Narva. So does he think the people here would prefer to be ruled from Moscow? He says the answer is probably no, because people cross the border, they can see Russia and they love Russia, but they live here. He says, I think no one or hardly anyone would wish that Russia occupies these territories. There is no such desire, no. The Estonian government doesn't share that confidence, which is why it asked for help from NATO to deter Russia from stepping foot across its border. The Baltic policing mission flies fighter jets from Estonia's Amari Air Base. The Americans have almost 200 soldiers in the country, equipped with heavy armour including tanks. And soon a British-led battle group will join them, supported by Danish and French soldiers. Russia has called the build-up of NATO troops near its border as provocative. NATO's Article 5 says that if Estonia is attacked, the UK and every NATO country must go to war to defend the alliance. Perhaps the very thing which angers Moscow, being part of NATO and part of Europe, could be what keeps Estonia safe. But many people here still believe freedom is only assured if Estonia and its allies are ready to fight for it. That was Charlotte Banks reporting from Estonia. Well, let's talk now to the British ambassador to Tallinn, Theresa Berber. Good to speak to you today, Theresa Berber. Thank you for joining us. How important is this deployment of 800 troops, which the Defence Secretary this week said will be leaving bound for Estonia this week? Uh, good afternoon. Yes, this is very important, this deployment, both for the UK and for Estonia. I think for the UK, it demonstrates very clearly our commitment uh, to our NATO allies. It's a fantastic opportunity for our troops to train and exercise in a completely different sort of terrain in Estonia um, and to work with other allies because they'll be working alongside the French and the Danes. And for the Estonians, uh, this provides reassurance that we really are standing alongside them as their allies and their friends. From living there in the country, how much reassurance do they really need, the Estonians? Um, they feel that they need a, a great deal. I don't think anybody feels that there is a, an imminent threat or a particular threat right now. Um, but their position on the, the NATO border makes them feel that, that a little bit of reassurance would be helpful. What kind of welcome will British troops receive? Um, well, the Estonians invited us to, to come here and everybody I speak to is absolutely delighted that they are coming. I was at Parliament earlier today, the Estonian Parliament, talking to the Defence Committee, who were very keen to, to tell me individually and collectively how grateful they are. So I would expect a very, very warm welcome. 
And um, I know that there are communities across Estonia who are looking forward to having a chance to meet and talk to the troops who are coming. Recently on this programme, we were talking about um, the fears that British troops could be targeted by Russians who are trying to undermine the NATO mission, sort of fake fights and various things, hacking, that kind of thing. Uh, How great a concern is that? Well, I think anything that would undermine the, the mission is obviously a concern. And with the number of people we're expecting, around a thousand people here, then there are bound to be incidents and accidents of all kinds. We will take every single one of those very seriously. We will look at them all um, individually. And of course, part of that is looking at how and why they happened. So um, I very much hope that there will be no provocation. Mm. But I and I'm sure many other people will be talking to the troops about what might happen and what they can do to avoid rising to it. What kind of what kind of warning are you going to put out then? Well, just common sense, most of it. Um, reminding them to to be careful. Reminding them that they represent the UK at all times, no matter how relaxed and and casual the the situation might feel. And being sure that they tell somebody if they feel that there's something that that isn't quite right. The UK and Estonia already have a shared military history. Do you think that's meaningful in this particular deployment, this context? Um, I think it's enormously meaningful. Uh, It feels very much like a reunion of old friends and allies. So we were here almost 100 years ago when Estonia first gained its independence in 1918. um, And our soldiers fought side by side in Afghanistan. So I'm absolutely sure that we would work well with any ally, but this feels as if we understand one another, we have a lot to learn from one another. And I know um, from the Estonian side that I've been talking to a lot, uh, they are very, very much looking forward to it and delighted that we are the framework nation for this deployment. You mentioned earlier that there's no specific risk or threat at the moment as perceived in the country, but with the arrival of all these NATO troops, how, how is the feeling, the tempo in the country changing? Um, I'm not sure that the tempo is changing and the purpose of the deployment is you know, to, to reassure that's what it's for and I hope that that's what it's doing. That's certainly what I'm hearing from the people I'm speaking to. So we're, we're absolutely not coming to ramp up any, any tension. That would be entirely counterproductive. Um, it's about reassurance and, and as far as I'm hearing at the moment, that's exactly what it's delivering. Theresa Berber, good to speak to you. Thank you for your time. That was Theresa Berber, the UK ambassador to Estonia. Uh, Christopher... Is this the new Cold War in the making? It's, it's part of something which is quite different in a Cold War. Um, the new Cold War, unlike the last one, which was pretty obvious, is a war of values. And it's, it's based on the war of policies. And so you get these great conflict of policies which uh, can be exercised, not necessarily with direct inf- intervention, but something quite different. I mean, we're talking, we're saying, well, nobody's going to about to invade um, uh, Estonia or Lithuania or Latvia, apart from Poland. They're the three main Baltic Baltic countries. In Latvia, there are, what, 27% of Latvians are ethnic Russians. In Estonia, it's 24%. In Latvia, it's about, I think it's about 4 maybe 6%. What we see, and if you look at the Atlantic Council report from Anya Agas uh, just last month, a lot of evidence that Russia could, if it wished to, do what it did in uh, in, in uh, Ukraine, and that start to wind up the ethnic groups. And this sort of fermenting 
leads to conflict. That's particularly important. Now, you've got someone like Putin who says only an insane person in a dream would think of attacking anybody. But he doesn't. And then he goes on to say, but we have to look after the interests of people who we regard as Russians there. In 2015, when he really got to grips with the job of the Defence Ministry, Michael Fallon, the Defence Secretary, had a briefing which went on for two and a half days. And he came out and he said this, that Putin could use, I'm quoting here, Putin could use the same tactics he has in Ukraine to destabilise the Baltic states. And I think from what he says, to some extent what Putin says, certainly what the Atlantic Council is saying, uh, it's it's a question of destabilisation more than anything else. Don't forget, last year, Anaconda, um, NATO put 31,000 troops into Poland. 24 countries turned Mm. up to do that. That is important. It is is the is the presence, which the Russians don't take too much notice of. But they do say, in that case, and the ethnic can, Russians in those countries, uh, the eth- well in Poland, not so much, but in Latvia and Estonia, not so much in Lithuania, although Lithuania the more vociferous. Uh, in Latvia and Estonia, they do take notice, mm-hmm. and they do say we object to that. And so you've already got, in theory. About a third of the population, third of the Mm. population saying we don't feel comfortable with it. And that's how you get into complications. It's also how you get into mistakes. Now, um, this week, the Disasters Emergency Committee launched an appeal to send aid to the 16 million people facing starvation in East Africa. A famine has already been declared in South Sudan, where 70 British troops are making preparations for the rest of the 400 strong deployment. They'll be supporting the UN mission in the war-torn country. International Development Minister James Wharton recently visited South Sudan to see the humanitarian situation for himself. He's spoken to our reporter, Jenny Longdon. When I was in South Sudan, I went to see the early deployment of Royal Engineers in Malakal. I saw the work that they're doing to establish uh, their base there, to prepare for uh, future deployments and to start to work with other troop-contributing countries and the UN and recognising what needs to be done. I saw huge numbers of people displaced from their homes. Uh, I saw the scale of the challenge in meeting basic humanitarian needs for those people uh, and the scale of the political challenge in South Sudan to bring conflict to an end to put pressure on those factions that have the ability to do that and to try to set that country back on a path towards peace. Uh, South Sudan is, in many respects, a man-made humanitarian crisis. It is a state with huge internal political difficulties. The UK and the international community are playing a role but there is an awful lot more that needs to be done there. Uh, And I saw some of the contribution that the hard-working men and women right across uh, representatives of the UK and UK government uh, and our armed forces are doing on the ground and the difference that it makes. I understand there are already 70 troops out there and that's going to rise to 400. What is it they're going to be doing? How much help are they going to be able to provide there? The contribution of UK troops in South Sudan is absolutely crucial. Uh, There are very significant international deployments there but the UK brings world-leading expertise and discipline, uh, experience of working in some of these challenging environments. And the Royal Engineers, for example, that were already deploying when I was there, uh, were already making a difference in contributing to uh, Malakal and the UN Protection of Civilians camp there, uh, helping to ensure the infrastructure is as it is, bringing the equipment that is needed, the understanding that is needed, the expertise that is needed. Uh, We are able to, because we have some of the best armed forces in the world, make a real high-level contribution to the professionalisation of what is done and the difference that international forces as a whole can make on the ground. I'm proud that's what we do. I've already seen that that is starting. And as we scale up our troop deployment, we'll be able to take that further.
And that number, that figure of 400 has been planned for a while now. Why, why is this taking so long to get those troops out there? There are always challenges with large deployments as part of multinational forces. Uh, and when I was out in South Sudan a few weeks ago, I saw the first deployment. Uh, that 70, 80 or so Royal Engineers who are preparing the way, we have to ensure that facilities are what they should be, that the equipment is there that is needed, that when our troops get there, that when our soldiers deploy, that they're able to do the things that we're sending there to, them there to do. We also have to ensure that they get the passage that they need, that the government of South Sudan recognises the support that it needs to give to enable this vital work to be undertaken. That's a huge and broad effort. Uh, it's one that we are getting on with and we're already seeing troops deployed as part of that process. Uh, troops that are going to make a real difference, bringing professionalism and discipline to support that international force, and most importantly to support the millions of people in South Sudan who've been so devastatingly impacted by conflict. Is there a date that you hope to have all 400 of them out there by? We need to see the deployment unfold uh, and there are plans for doing that but there are also factors including the relationship with the government of South Sudan and the work we need to do with them to make it happen in the right way and the right time frame. I'm confident that this is already taking place and is going to take place. I'm confident that our planners are doing it in the right way and at the right pace. I'm confident moreover that when we have our deployment in full strength and as it builds up it is already making a significant contribution to the work of UK aid, to the work of the UK government and the international community, to the work that needs to be done to help those people who have been so badly affected by the conflict there. And does South Sudan have a problem with that deployment? We need to continue to work in a very challenging environment in South Sudan and that includes uh, negotiating with government uh, organisations to pave the way for our troop deployment but also for the rest of the work that the UK does through our UK aid programme but also through our international partners. That is always a difficult uh, negotiating process. There are always frank discussions that need to take place. When I was there I met government ministers and I had some of those frank discussions myself. Uh, but that's an ongoing process and I'm confident that we we will be able to make a very significant contribution and we'll be making that contribution in the right way and it will be helping some of those people who've been so badly affected. That was the International Development Minister James Wharton speaking to Jenny Longdon. A hundred years ago this week, Tsar Nicholas II abdicated from the Russian throne. The Bolsheviks came to power a few months later and so began communist rule in Russia. So, how are the Russians marking the anniversary? Well, it appears they're not. Dr Martin McCauley is a Russian <coughs> specialist from University College London. He's joined us in the studio. Hello, Martin. Are you surprised there's no celebrations? Uh, the Communist Party of the uh, Russian Federation will celebrate it because uh, they think it was the most important event of the 20th century. But for President Putin, he would prefer uh, just to ignore it because he said uh, what the Bolsheviks did was put a bomb under Russia and it blew up. And he does not want to celebrate the overthrow of the existing order. He doesn't want to give people ideas. You know, do we need another uh, uh, October Revolution in 2017? No. Let's let's forget about the uh, the 20 uh, the 1917 one because it took Russia off in the wrong direction. From Putin's point of view, uh, it destroyed Tsarist power. It made Russia weak, and then they went off in the wrong direction. Mm. And eventually, of course, the state collapsed in 1991. And in his view, what is the right direction for Russia? The right direction would have been uh, for the Tsarist regime to have continued, but to have reformed uh, and to have kept the power and uh, then managed the, econ the economy and society from the top down. Uh, 
and kept the Russian Empire together because one of his great regrets is that the Soviet Union fell apart. If you look at Central Asia with all its enormous resources, if you look at Eastern Europe, if you look at the Baltic states, Ukraine and so on, he would have preferred them all to stay together. And many Russians today will tell you, uh, if you look at the Sykes-Picot agreement in the Middle East, it's lasted 100 years. Isn't it about time we then reformed or thought about reforming the, uh, the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union's border? Perhaps we can go back to something like the Soviet Union. So the, if you like, the great power or the superpower complex or, or design is still there in the Russian mind, and they can't really come to terms with the fact that they have lost their superpower uh, uh, position. Christopher Lee. There is no superpower now, is there? I mean, that's the whole problem. You have to go and identify what superpower wants you to want to do it. You say, well, we're coming in and sort this out, and you can't do that anymore. I'll tell you what, um, if you go back to 1982, I remember talking to, in Moscow, there's a man called Suslov, who was the, who sort of preserved the soul of the Communist Party. And I said to him, how important is the Communist Party to the people? Uh, his view was very simple. Um, uh, they understood it. They knew where they stood. Um, they had no other ideas that they could trust. Later on, three years later on, four years later on, I was talking to Galibachev about this. And I said, OK, what about it? And he said, the great thing about the Communist Party, it is a wiring diagram. And any reforms you want to make, you put on that wiring diagram and you have the organisations that can actually progress them. And this was a totally different view of the Communist Party than the <coughs> traditional one which we'd had until then. Is that right, Mike? Yes, because Suslov, if you like, was the, was the high priest. He was the Pope mm. of Marxism-Leninism. But very, he had more divisions than the yeah, Pope. And he was, he was very, very orthodox. Uh, because remember, he'd been in Budapest in 1956 and seen the, the bloodshed uh, which had occurred there and the terrible aftermath and he was concerned that something like that would not happen in the Soviet Union. In fact, if you look at Poland, uh, he advocated the Soviet troops intervening in Poland, whereas Gorbachev mm -hmm. and the others said, no, 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 under no circumstances uh, can we go into Poland because uh, think about uh, uh, Hungary and think about Afghanistan. So um, communism, even today, covers about, what, one-sixth of the world. Why did it fail in Russia? Failed in Russia because they could not reform the economy. They couldn't uh, increase living standards to the level that the average Soviet citizen wanted. They looked outside. They even looked at East Germany. They looked at Czechoslovakia. They're living better than we are. Uh, and they also looked at Soviet officials when they went abroad. They came back in, in, uh, in uh, 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 London suits and fancy shoes and so on, and the women had uh, jewels and they had bags and so on. In other words, they didn't believe in the future of the Soviet Union. They, they wanted the things they had in the West mm. and under capitalism. And the average person said, we want the same thing. I tell you what, um, Raiza, Raiza Galipachov, uh, who was Mrs. Mrs. Galipachov. I love the way he says the name as if he were Russian himself. Uh, Raiza. Raiza. <laughs> There's the Galipachov. Anyway, I, I just call him Gorbachev to me. Oh, stop. <laughs> um, anyway, okay, yes, go on. Talking to her, and I said, where is the where is the mechanism? Your husband talks about having a wiring diagram so you can pin reform on it. But where is the mechanism for the people? And she said, too many of them now see copies of Hello magazine. Hmm. No, and she said, and they look at it and they say, that's how the West lives. Not high society, that, not Hollywood society. That's how the West lives. And we want some. 
and there is the there, there's the potency of unrest. Whereas Gorbachev is going around saying, "You want a revolution just because of sausages? You know, <laughs> so help me." Martin, um, you, you're talking about uh, President Putin uh, harking back to the Soviet era, wanting to recreate some of that. What is his plan? What has he got? What, what, what is his thinking, strategy in place? To make Russia a great power, to keep Russia a great power. Indeed. To expand into the areas where the Soviet Union was before, How? especially but, the Middle so East. So it is expansion then, territorially. Yes. That is not expansion from the Russian point of view. That's going back Getting into, back what you used to have. Uh, because they, they uh, had a very close relationship with Syria ever since the 1950s. Remember that the top Syrian military were all trained in Russian, speak Russian. Mm. Uh, and Egypt, and, and now there's a, a Russian unit on the Egyptian border waiting to go into, into Libya. In other words, you're going back to what they had before, uh, and they see that as their right, and they're going to have military bases in Syria, uh, and also they go, they'll go into the rest of the Do world. Do you have some empathy for this this point of view? Yes, I can understand it, and from from if you study uh, Soviet foreign policy, this is in fact, I've seen all this before. You know, uh, this is this is not new at all because uh, you could go back to the 1950s and 60s and read the speeches. It's exactly they said spreading communism in those days, uh, but nowadays they talk about uh, uh, defending uh, the Middle East against imperialism and keeping the Americans out. Uh, and letting the Russians in. Mm. Uh, Martin, it's good to speak to you. Uh, thank you very much for your time today. And, uh, and you've got a book out, The, the Cold War, 1949 to 2016. That's out on the 6th of April, right? That is, and that covers everything from Stalin to Putin. All we need to know. Um, Christopher, just before we go, um, a little final thought for the week ahead. You've got uh, 10 seconds. <laughs> final thought for the, for, the, for the week ahead. You watch stories coming out about, uh, uh, about the court case. The raw marines are starting to gather to defend themselves. And that is all we have time for today. My thanks to all of our guests. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.